Hello, hello, fam. I cannot wait to just get straight into today's Ceremony Circle podcast episode. I'm your host, shaman, best-selling author, Allison Charles, and we are joined around Sacred Grand Fire today with Jose Alejandro. He is an embodied leadership coach, impact-driven business strategist, men's work facilitator, and breathwork guide. He is the founder of Intentional Impact, a program focused on helping impact-driven men increase their impact and initiate the next evolution of their gift, vision, and leadership with intention and integrity. He is also the co-founder of Modern Renaissance Man, a movement empowering modern men to find their edge so they can fully express their truth and their own power. And Jose and I really enter a sacred shamanic space today and deep, deep healing medicine is involved and shared as we talk about why embodiment and integrity, you've heard me say those two words a lot before, why those came to the forefront of his guidance and his teachings, why he feels no one can be in complete integrity 100% of the time. We dive into his own hero's journey, especially around his ethnicity and different places he lived and how that experience and never feeling good enough took him so far out of alignment with his authentic truth that it ended up being a driving force of his spiritual awakenings. And we cover vision quests, what they are and his own experiences doing them and facilitating them, why rites of passage work is so important, and then something I just felt so called to discuss with Jose, the topic of the fallen guru. I wanted to get his perspective on why some spiritual leaders allow their shadows to take over and end up falling from grace, and why it seems to happen to more men. We cover the vital importance of immersing in practices that allow you to truly sit with yourself and your emotions, the miracles this can provide if you can just let it happen, and perhaps my most favorite part of the whole conversation, generational slash lineage healing. Jose very generously and bravely shares a story here today that he has never shared publicly before. And let me tell you, the liberation medicine held within it, I felt it so palpably, and it provides a huge big step in freeing this entire planet. One last thing you'll also hear in depth about during this episode was that there was huge healing medicine in today's talk for me personally, as I learned Jose is Puerto Rican. And we allow weaving to unfold that transmutes some of my past traumatic experiences with a former Puerto Rican partner that I was with for nearly two decades. All right, this one's a power-packed one, everybody. So let's get to it. A vision quest of self-love and lineage healing with embodiment guide and men's work facilitator, Jose Alejandro. Oh, 12.05. Oh, really? <laughs> Wait, what? We'll say what? 12.05, December 5th is my birthday. Just hit record on 12.05. Oh, cool. 12.05. So I'm New Year's Day. So you're Capricorn. No, you're Sagittarius. Sag. Sag, yeah. My childhood best friend. I mean, we're still best friends, but I've been best friends with her since childhood or since high school, I should say, or middle school. She's also a Sagittarius. So yeah. Yeah. I'm Sag, Sag, Scorpio. So it's a couple Sages in there. <laughs> cool. My husband is a Scorpio. I really enjoy any sort of Scorpio flavoring in the mix. It's always nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool mix though. Sagittarius, Sagittarius, Scorpio. Do you like that yeah. balance? 
I do. I mean, it's only until recently that I've actually started diving into the meaning of the second two. Wasn't really aware of what it meant, but it makes complete sense. The Scorpio in there definitely, uh, definitely revealed and gave some of some, I guess, context to a lot of my journey. And then the Sad Sag makes complete sense. Nice. Yeah. Well, speaking of your journey, I wanted to start at, and you speaking to the Scorpio piece is what is bringing me directly to where I wanted to begin with you and finding the words for it. Okay. So I'm not sure how familiar with my work that you are or ceremony circle podcast, but for anyone who's listened to my show, they've heard me say the two words embodiment and integrity, probably 20,000 times at this point. And those are the two themes that I just revere the most within my own self and try to keep an eye on the most within my own being and also within others, especially regarding who I want to have come on the show and things of that nature. And so when the divine source that is Instagram um, somehow... (laughs) you showed up in my like suggested posts or whatever in my feed. And I saw you with Minari who has been on ceremony circle and we have both worked with him and you just, you recently were down in the jungle with him. I was there in April. Yeah. I was there in April. Cool. Yeah. And so when I saw you standing with him and then Jess, his right hand woman who does a lot of business with him, I was like, huh, who's this guy? And popped over to your feed. And I just saw those two words like everywhere on your Instagram and on your website. And I was like, okay, if this man is teaching and also speaking to these two essences, it seems as much as I am, I really started to get a a sense of trust that because in order to be a teacher of these things, you can't take these two pieces lightly and someone is really far out of embodiment or really far out of integrity. It would be tough to be a teacher of those two things because you're saying like, this is what I really know. And I, you know, I checked in with Jess because I typically like to have people that I've worked with and spent time with you know, I was just like, who's this person that you're in this picture with? And she's like, Oh, Jose is awesome. Like, you know, and spoke really highly. Yeah. Highly of you. And so I just wanted to hear from you. How did you land on those pieces? And I'm not trying to like paint Scorpio energies as any kind of way, like every sign and every person has light and dark, but Scorpio, you tend to think of like more of the shadowy stuff. And so I was like, huh, Maybe because you've been someone who's really faced your shadows, maybe that is one of the threads that led you over into this embodiment and integrity piece. Like, why did you pick those two things to be a teacher of? Well, thank you for adding so much context. And, you know, what comes up initially, first thing I have to say, and I share with any man that asks me about integrity or embodiment, is that integrity and embodiment are a practice. They're not something that we can ever master. So... Although I do talk about those topics a lot, and it's a big part of my work, the Scorpio energy thing comes into it with, without actually knowing that was part of it. But my always already, which one of my teachers says, this is the story that no matter how much work we do, it's always there, always knocks on the door. And for me, it's I'm not worthy, I'm not enough. Right? That's the story that has come up for me throughout my 20s when I really started diving into just my own shadow and just my own spiritual journey. 
And that always led me to where am I, where am I out of integrity? Even to the point that I can get caught up in overthinking if I'm in integrity or not. And if I'm in integrity with someone else or with the thing that I originally committed to. So it's a shadow aspect that has helped me like bring alignment in my life. But I also find it to be something that can be taken very literally. So a lot of my work throughout my journey has been realizing where I have been disciplined for the sake of discipline. So trying to be in integrity and keeping my word and following through, even if I'm out of integrity with the truth of who I am, what I actually why I actually originally committed to something. So it's actually been interesting because I've gone to the shadow of both those. And one thing that I always like to talk about is the difference between integrity, being a man of our word. Um, primarily, I work with men. So being a man of our word versus a man of our truth. And I think integrity means bringing alignment and centering our mind, body, heart, and soul. And that sometimes means renegotiating our commitments. So throughout my 20s, I was in corporate for about seven years. And I was so focused on the goal, the corner office, the financial metric that I said, this is going to be my measure of success and doing everything I could to make it happen, even if it meant burning myself out every single quarter. And I had to reevaluate that, really look at, okay, I'm in integrity with the thing I committed to, but I feel so far out of integrity from who I actually want to be. I don't, I'm not living according to my vision. I'm not living according, living according to my truth. I'm not expressing my truth. I might be saying that I'm in integrity with everything I overcommitted to everyone else, but I'm out of integrity with the person that matters most to mm. me. Mm -hmm. So it's a journey and I'm still on it. I mean, there's probably five different things I was out of integrity with this week and really just looking at why was that with curiosity rather than judgment is really what I feel like is the biggest thing when it comes to integrity. So often we focus on consistency, courage, and having the courage to be in integrity and consistent. But one C that I always bring forth and has been a major shift in how I looked at integrity in my life was compassion. So really looking at those things with curiosity and compassion. Yeah, I think that those aspects are also really important. And it's always interesting when I'm listening to the guests share your answers. And typically I get flooded with different downloads or visions and things. And then I have to try to find human words for what was coming in. And so oftentimes I'll just try my best to find the words and do a random ramble and see if anything percolates up for you as I'm doing this. But it's such an intriguing, nuanced, what comes to me is this theme of like the shamanic arts and how, and the healing arts and how, when we walk these paths, it really does become such a nuanced art expression of art and a nuanced dance, because even though yes, I'm a shaman. And yes, I've been instructed to use that title shaman. And yes, I am a teacher. Yes, I teach a lot about shadow work and all of these things. It's like 
I also still have a shadow and I also revere and respect my shadow. And I also revere and respect the human Allison as much as I do the shaman Allison. And so then it's like, what was coming in for me as I'm listening to you is like similar in the vein that I just spoke to. It's like, yes, I'm a teacher of embodiment and a teacher of integrity. And yet I'm very aware of the shadow side and the light side of doing the work of integrity and embodiment. And I'm, and you're also not trying to say, because you teach integrity that like, that you're 100% in the integrity lane all the time. And like, I guess my point is that's the point is that you can be in all of these spaces at one time, if that makes sense. It, it makes complete sense. I mean, what comes up for me as you share that, that was a beautiful reflection. We are never 100% in integrity. And when I say that, I have said that before in the conversation or the response that I have heard sometimes is, well, that sounds like an excuse to be out of integrity. And what I mean by that instead is, so we're never in 100% integrity when we're always, uh, when we're committed and have reverence for the journey, revealing our truth. There's always another step. There's always something because we are human. And there's a difference between saying, well, I'm out of integrity. I'm going to be out of integrity no matter what. So might as well just not keep my word, not honor anything that I commit to, including myself and anyone else or relationships that I'm in. There's a difference between that and being committed to all the things that matter to you, but acknowledging that there are blind spots, that I do have areas where I might have overcommitted or I may have made a decision that I have to stay true to for the sake of the relationship or the thing I committed to, but need to renegotiate sometime in the future in order for me to be in my truth and show up as powerfully to the people I love, the people I serve, my community. And sometimes that means saying no, which can disappoint people, right? And ultimately, I think the more we say no to the things that aren't aligned, and yes, to the things that are, we can be of greater service to everyone around us that we do make commitments to, especially when we fall short, because they know that we are just in reverence to our truth and therefore want them to be the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. And where I'm being taken to now is how you honestly share that a piece that you became aware of in yourself is that narrative of not being worthy enough. How did you phrase that? What was that narrative for you? I'm not worthy and I'm not enough. Not worthy and not enough. And I don't know why, and I'm not trying to say that this directly correlates. And I actually meant to ask you before I hit record. I know that you're talking to me now from Puerto Rico. Are you Puerto Rican? I am. I was born and raised here. Um, I moved to the States when I was five with my mom. And then from five to about 16, I would come to Puerto Rico every summer, spend time with my grandparents for about three, four months. And I lived in in New Jersey for about 20 years. And last year, my fiance and I moved back. So we're back home. It feels incredible. She loves it as well. So it's just been a beautiful journey of returning back to home to the self. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And in your exploration of that, not enough, not worthy enough piece, bear with me as we kind of like (laughs) walk along this thread that I'm taking us on or that we're walking together in that exploration of that narrative. Did any of it tie into your heritage at all? 
That's a great question. So my my parents are twice, three times divorced. And first time they divorced was when I was five. And that is the main reason why I moved from Puerto Rico to the States. So my mom is born and raised in Puerto Rican. My parents are Puerto Rican. They live here, uh, which I'm blessed to be an hour away from now. But she was born and raised in New York. So when my parents divorced, she went to the States. My father stayed here. And there was like this really intense, like, culture shock and just really pivotal moment in my life. So I came to the States and I had, I spoke English. My mom taught me and I went to uh, school here and learned English, but I had an accent. So I didn't fit in with the kids in PA, Pennsylvania. And when I would come for the summers to Puerto Rico, the kids here would start making fun of me during the summer. Mm -hmm. So there was almost like this ping pong effect of, okay, so I'm not enough for kids in Puerto Rico. I'm not enough for the kids. And obviously now I'm making the phrase super simple to understand by saying I'm not enough. But when I was five, it was like just frustration, sadness, anger. The same thing happened in my teens. So I got into a great high school, which was like a county. It was like a collection of the county and kids got accepted from different towns. And I was raised in, if anybody's listening, Elizabeth, New Jersey. So it's very Latino and Black community. And the school that I went to was mostly white. So it was going there and I was too hood for those kids and mm. then coming home and then I was getting called white and all those labels when I was going back to my hood. So it was just interesting how that pattern would repeat itself. And I slowly started to give up my sovereignty and give up my truth in order to fit into those places in order to feel like I was enough. Wow. So it has everything to do with that and with integrity, like yes. me compromising those aspects of myself in order to feel like I was in integrity with the thing I felt like I needed to belong to. Oh my Lord. Wow. Yeah. We landed on a really potent, juicy nucleus. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's really trippy because like you were saying with each location, you, you felt you had to, at the time to like do all this shape shifting, but with each location, you had to shape shift in different ways. And so, yeah, the getting further and further out of alignment with your personal truth and integrity and sovereignty was happening in different ways, but in some the same, I don't know. It's just like, I can see how that so quickly could become so confusing and you get so disconnected from your own soul. And I can also see how that would be a huge foundational, powerful framework from which once you land on the healing path and spiritual path, it's like, oh, I can easily see how that would inform and how you landed upon those main themes. And it's just intriguing because, and part of the reason I, that was coming in this morning before we even got on to ask you about, and then as we were chatting, I was like, okay, now it's starting to like come in a little closer to be asked. And one of the intriguing layers and this dynamic with you and I is my ex-fiance is Puerto Rican. And so I have a, I had a very long history, almost two decades with him. And he was actually the instrument for my awakening. It's like, even all these years later, it's just, I can still feel some little zips and zaps of some charge of just like that long karmic journey with him and, and his family. He's full Puerto Rican. He was actually, well, 
no, he was born in Puerto Rico. And then they came uh, back to the States when he was young, but I made many trips down to Puerto Rico and like, that's where the majority of his family still is, you know? And so I'm familiar with the Island and love it. And so when I started to sense that you were most likely Puerto Rican, there was something in it that I could tell would probably be healing for me and being able to talk to you like a Puerto Rican man who has like really committed and devoted to healing and facing yourself because I don't know, you know, and I send it's all good. And there's plenty of podcasts where I explain the whole journey and I try (laughs) to get into it and it's all a blessing. You know, he was a teacher of mine, but nonetheless, there was a lot of trauma woven into that, that long journey. And at the time that I knew of him, I don't know his whereabouts. I don't know the man he is now, but the biggest piece was that he was just unable at the time and maybe still is unable to face himself and very unable to face his own addictions and shadows and things like that. And so I was just like, as we got connected and got this booked, I started to chuckle more and more at like some of the (laughs) unexpected pieces of us sitting together. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing part of that story. And it, it definitely resonates with just my own journey. I mean, first and foremost, big catalyst for me going deep into my shadow, not just understanding psychology conceptually, because I did get my BA in psychology, but it wasn't until six years later that I actually dove into the depths of myself and understood those things somatically. And the catalyst for that was my relationship with Sam. So a lot of things surfaced the third time my parents divorced because I was in the middle of that. It was literally about four months after I moved out of my house and my brother was in college. So that was kind of like the five-year-old coming back, feeling like I'm responsible mm-hmm. for everything and I'm not enough. That's So all of that came up and showed up in my relationship and it revealed ways that I was showing up in my relationship before that moment. It just amplified them. It was kind of like, wow, like there's some things that I really need to look at. And initially it was like this desire to fix the relationship. But obviously once you actually, once I actually went into the journey, it was like, it has nothing to do with the relationship. It's about how I'm relating to the world and myself and everything around me. Yes. And with that, I do want to speak to Puerto Rican culture and just a lot of the things that we are healing. My grandfather from my father's side. Uh, passed when I was about three years old. And I never really knew much about him because whenever I would ask, there's men that have been coming to the spaces that that I've been creating down here. And there's men outside of the spaces I'm creating who are doing their work and looking at their shadow. But I'll speak to my own experience and my father's side of the family. They would always avoid speaking about him. And they would use the word toxic a lot. Right. So my father got the, had the blessing of connecting with him around the last three years of his father's life and got to know a little bit more, but it was still limited. And both of us wanted to understand. I mean, in my 20s, really, when I started asking my father about him and uh, he told me some stories that he had shared. Now, there's a word um, Puerto Rico that's being used and it's, it's a real problem, femicide. So there's a lot of domestic abuse that leads to murdering a partner. There's been a recent boxer a couple months ago, or recently a boxer like committed murder and killed a woman that he was seeing behind his partner's back. 
And that is healing that's happening in the country, in the island right now. And it's deeply connected to my, my, my ma- the masculine and healing that I had to go through. And part of one of, and one of the deepest shadows that I really had to explore. And my father's father, my grandfather confessed to my father that his wife, after my father's mother, he had actually gone to prison for seven, 10 years because he caught her cheating on him and he murdered her. And that was something that I really like, it was an under, I got a deeper context and understanding. Not many people in my family, in his family knew that, but not many, but it gave me context to um, the type of person that he was in his human life and why people didn't want me to know about him, why my father was kept away from him and all of those things. But it's actually interesting. I there's a scene in Star Wars, the old three, where they're sitting around the fire. The spirit of Darth Vader, he's no longer has like his whole getup. He's just in his human form and he's smiling with Yoda and Obi-Wan. And last year I sat in a peyote ceremony with 40 men and it was a, a masculine healing ceremony. And I felt him healing through me. Mm-hmm. And I felt him, we were literally around the fire and I experienced almost like that visual of his highest self, uh, letting me know that the only way for me to integrate and embody the sacred, the healthy masculine is to really go deep into like who he was and what is being carried out to me through me. And that's just one story. And on the other side, my mother's father, when she was 18, she wanted to go to college. She had two brothers. He didn't want her to go to college. He wanted her to get married and live the exact same life that my grandmother lived and be in the kitchen all day. My mother really rebelled against that. She actually ended up being the first woman to graduate in our family. And she has a master's degree. But throughout my life, there was a lot of emasculation. There was a lot of things that I would see between my mom and my father. I needed to heal as well. And my mom and I have healed together. And she's gone on her own journey since the divorce as well as my father. But it was also part of my healing journey with the masculine of almost like rejecting that power within me. And the way that I can bring it into, into my leadership in an embodied and integrated way because of um, that relationship with my mom as well. We feel a lot through it now together and individual and on my own. I've, I've dove into that shadow for a while too. But she owns that part of the times where she would stop me from speaking my truth it was because it was a reminder of a man not allowing her to be in her truth and making her wrong and not acknowledging her needs. So that's been the relationship with the masculine and the feminine based on just the patterning and the ancestral or generational trauma that has occurred in my life. And I know has occurred in many lives, not just Puerto Ricans, but Hispanic community. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Thank you so much for so honestly sharing about your lineage and your ancestry. And I just think you in that medicinal storytelling is one, if not the main reason why I finally answered the call to do a podcast and to have it be the format that Ceremony Circle is medicinal storytelling, because I could literally feel as you were speaking the truth about your grandfather's experience and speaking the truth about there being murder involved and prison involved, like I could feel the particles like being liberated. 
as you speak to that and not trying to like closet that darker type of story, which, you know, in history, most people along the way try to, because like what typically I would guess would come up for people is like, well, what might they think of me if they know my grandfather is a murderer and things like that. But it's through, you know, just speaking these truths alive that so much healing happens. And thank you for agreeing to dip into this very detailed, specific part of the conversation. Because yeah, when I was reflecting back just around my own, like I said, experience with Puerto Rican culture and families, like you all, it's a real specific type of dynamic and energy, the Puerto Rican way, the Puerto Rican families, how you all engage and interact. And of course, not all Puerto Ricans hundred percent fall into what I'm trying to say, but that was my experience in living within that culture for a long time and also witnessing other families. And I just, yeah, when it, when I feel into Puerto Rican ancestry, I can just feel how much healing is needed, you know? And again, I'm not trying to say that all Puerto Ricans have addiction issues and are alcoholics, but you know, that way of experiencing life through alcohol seemed to be very prevalent. And I I guess I'm just saying all of this because it's just refreshing to my soul to know that there's at least one Puerto Rican man who, because the other thing I wanted to bring in, which I thought was intriguing when I really think about, because I've been a spiritual teacher for a very long time and I can think of a couple of colleagues who are part or full Puerto Rican, but in the healing world, when it comes to spiritual teachers, there's not that many of you that are Puerto Rican. And I found that interesting too. Yeah. Well, that's part of the reason why I've explored so many other cultures to really connect with my ancestry and just connect with my spiritual ancestry. Because there are elders, Ricos, indigenous, were Taino, right? And there are some people on the island that are still practicing those that lineage, but it's not as fluent as many other indigenous cultures that are currently, you know, Manari, for example. I just spent a couple, about a week with Manari in Ecuador in the Zapata community, and I learned so much about my Taino culture through them, right? So there's that aspect of we're all from the same spirit, all from the same sacred creator, whatever you want to call it. So that was where my journey started, going to different cultures, um, Lakota sitting in peyote ceremony, sitting with Mayan elders around the fire in Guatemala, in the Amazon. But all of that led me back to this desire of coming back home, of Mm -hmm. coming to Puerto Rico. And actually in coming to Puerto Rico, I've met some really incredible people who are who are spiritual leaders and just community leaders. And I do think that my goal in being here is also to empower and amplify their voices because there are many. And surprisingly, I've also just found out that there's vision quests happening in Puerto Rico and some Lakota uh, chiefs are coming down and leading vision quests down here. And there's a community mm. um, as well as Temascals and all of that, sweat lodges. So there's almost like this renaissance mm. happening and reconnection with our ancestry and the spiritual lineage that we do carry and is alive and well on the island. Oh, uh-huh. well, I'm really happy to hear that. And if there 
are spiritual guides and leaders who you feel are in healthy alignment with an embodiment integrity, you know, send me an email or let me know who they are to potentially have them on ceremony circle. I'm happy to get to know more of them. And so next I want to ask you the question that was a bit of a unique one, but it seemed to make sense for the work that you do, because like I shared in the intro and like you alluded to in our chat, you primarily, not strictly, but primarily work with a lot of men. And we've also talked about the embodiment and integrity side. And so I, this question I'm about to ask you is one I have pondered for a very long time. I've brought up in discussion, like I just did the other day, we were floating in Krause Springs here in Texas with some of my friends, Shiva Rose, Ksenia Abdelova, shout out, and my husband, Luke, and a couple of other amazing guys, Alive Water. And as we're floating there, I pose this question and I can't get an answer from anyone. And and I'm not trying to put pressure on you, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on it at all. And it's the idea around the fallen gurus. And in my lifetime, there have certainly been a lot of examples, Osho being one. There's that documentary on Netflix. I forget mm-hmm. the name of it. Do you, I don't know if you remember the name of it, but um, it's about Osho and there's John of God and the list. You can go on and on and on of these like male spiritual teachers and guides who... I get the sense, have a real genuine, real connection to source, to spirit, have genuine spiritual gifts, but somehow along the way, they become these fallen gurus who slide more and more prevalently into the shadow side or the darker side, and they might begin to abuse those legit spiritual gifts and powers. And when I think about all the stories that I've heard nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, the fallen guru stories are male. They're men, they're men, spiritual teachers. And I'm just, I keep asking, it's just something I'm curious about. I ask myself and I ask colleagues, I'm like, why is that? And I'm just curious if you've ever pondered that or have any thoughts at all, like why throughout history, there seems to be more stories of fallen guru, male spiritual teachers than female. That's a great question. And I for sure am not an expert in why each of those individuals. <laughs> You're not an expert uh, in following <laughs> Right. But first, I want to honor and really give reverence to the women and men that have been affected by those fallen gurus and have been taken advantage of because holding space and creating whether it's a spiritual space, a practical space where someone can just surrender and heal. and all, It takes a lot of responsibility and it takes a lot of trust on the receiving end to allow yourself to be received in that way. To be, to, to, so just really want to bring that to the forefront. And one thing I will say is that I think we're at the height of like, Actually, I won't say height, maybe just social media is amplifying that of cancel culture. You know, it's like the term that we're using, but there's different nuances and layers to that and what it really means. But just for the sake of like context, I'll use that word. For me, you know, I've, in our spaces and in many spaces that I have been in, I have met men and have sat next to men who have perhaps done something that they're not proud of that they have shame around or that they 
would probably be canceled or be considered a fallen move. Right. And a big piece to the work I'm speaking about integrity and just to the work that my teachers have passed down to me when it comes to men's work, but how I carry it is the element of accountability without judgment. Because I've also seen many of those men receive the opportunity to be received and be held accountable in a way that maybe their defenses would come right up if addressed in a different way. And what I always like to think of is like the levels. It makes me think of just culture and uh, Will Smith smacking Chris Rock, right? So in my opinion, there was a boundary that was crossed. However, there were some steps that were skipped that could have been a method of responding differently before physical reaction was needed. So there's an element of there have been, there has been using that example who are in our spaces who aren't open to be held accountable. And in that case, we have to take things to the next level. Perhaps they're not in agreement with the standards of integrated embodied masculine that we're really cultivating in space. And either they are taking away from themselves or from others, but they're not going to do it in the container. So we give them warning or we hold hold them accountable at a different level. And sometimes it also means that we have to remove them from the space. So I can't really speak to why it happens most nine out of of 10 times with men, but I think a lot of it has to do with sexual, like sexual abuse, harassment, things of that nature. And it goes back to the shadow aspects of people in power, right? And uh, that it's a practice, not a mastery. And sometimes for myself, I'll speak for myself, being in a position of authority in a certain space it can be easy to forget to have mirrors around me that can hold me accountable. So that's a big piece to me on my journey. It's I have spaces that I lead. I have spaces that sometimes I co-create with my partner, who's also an embodiment coach for women. And there's a lot of feminine energy that I have to be responsible with myself and how I show up in that space. Mm-hmm. And it's important for me to have other spaces where I have mirrors that I feel like I can surrender to, be vulnerable with, and be honest with so that they can hold me to a standard that I've committed to with accountability, integrity, and also with compassion and non-judgment. Because once I start feeling like I've gone to a certain level where I don't need mirrors, mm. I think that's where things start to come in. Because there's not a single man I mean, I've, I've seen men in different levels of life, different levels of financial abundance, et cetera, come into the spaces. They have leadership positions. And whether it's in corporate or in a spiritual dynamic, they could easily, if they continue a certain pattern, go into the fallen guru. So coming into the space allows other men, regardless if they're at the same level in that area of life, but perhaps are at a higher level of integrity to say, bro, that's unacceptable. Like mm-hmm. that's out of line. Does this feel like it's an integrity with who you want to be? And just a reminder, because if we don't have that, then we start to believe that we're godlike and we forget that we actually have those shadow aspects. And sometimes they might arise. That's not the problem. It's the reaction to them and abusing our power in spaces like the ones that we are. We are blessed to have the responsibility to, to hold. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I feel even though you're not an expert in fallen guru syndrome, you did a very highly adept job at answering that. Yeah, you brought in some really strong perspective and inside and the last little button all put on it that was coming in was taking me back again to that theme of the shamanic arts and the healing arts and that dance of when you see and when you truly feel called within you and guided that it has become your place for whatever reason to hold someone more accountable and to maybe call someone forward, call someone in instead of calling someone quote unquote out and the whole cancel culture thing. When you feel the true genuine call to call them forward, call them in and hold them to a higher level of accountability. It's like the responsibility that's there within you to do that. Like you said, in a place of as much infusement of unconditional love and compassion and non-judgment as possible so that they're able to hear and receive what you're saying. And even though what you're speaking to might feel jarring or scary, the place from which you're delivering it from, they're able to still meet it and hear it, even if it feels triggering or scary. And then it becomes their responsibility, right? To like do their best to observe where their ego is at in hearing what they're hearing and doing. It's their responsibility to do their best to keep their defenses down. But again, it's that whole art, right? Of both people in that dance have responsibilities in that particular art form of that conversation. So that's why more and more like the deeper I get in this work and on this path, it's just like, I just laugh more and more because there's so many infinite nuances to everything. And it's just like, it's a classic case of me, like the deeper I get into wisdom, the more I realize I know nothing, that kind of thing. It's also funny too, because at the top of the page, right before I clicked on Zoom with you, I put in all capital letters and in quotes, a potential title for our episode before we even began. And the title is Responsibility and Power. Yeah. It's interesting, before you said those words, I was thinking of Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And the word privilege also came up, like having that much power and responsibility is a privilege, right? So sometimes that means that even though there will be a space for us to heal, if we do something that abuses that power, first and foremost, there might be, and it's highly likely that we lose some privilege. And that sometimes is necessary in order to keep someone safe. In this spiritual community and in, in the world that I'm in, but I'm also tapped into the culture and I can still go home to New Jersey and sit on the stoop with my old homies. And one thing that we talk about is like sometimes the oppressed in a situation is in immediate danger. And there's no time to worry about the oppressor's healing in that very moment. So, so there needs to be a removal of that oppressor from a space and from a privilege in order to create safety so that then the healing could happen with the oppressed and the oppressor so that it doesn't go deeper into the shadow and show up in worse ways or get passed down through generations or fill in the blank, go into the shadows and come out different times. So just want to say that with great power does come great responsibility. And sometimes we're not deserving of all of that privilege if we cross a line just for the sake of the safety of everyone that's involved in the work that we do. And like any relationship, we have to reestablish trust. Right? Yeah. So re- trust needs to be reestablished. 
And the more power we have, the more it takes to regain trust. Mm-hmm. Not because of not only because of the quantity of people, because of the quality of the work that exists. Yeah. Amen. And next, I'd love to dip a bit into when I was on the Modern Renaissance Man, I think it was your Instagram page for that company that you have, I saw, or maybe it was on the website, but it said three out of five men would rather get electronically shocked than sit with their thoughts and emotions. I was like, whoa, that's intriguing. And then the next slide said that's 67% of men who would rather be tortured by getting electronically shocked than to simply be with themselves. And I don't know that I have a specific question here. I just found that I think it just kind of goes along a bit in the amoeba of this conversation that we're having. And I just found it really intriguing. And I guess maybe I already know the answer to this part of the question. It's like, do you feel that we're going in a more positive direction of hopefully that percentage reducing just with more and more people awakening and more spiritual teachers being out there and also allowing the spiritual space to be more open to men. I think in the past, it's was spirituality was maybe looked at more as like the witches and the priestesses and the naked ladies rewilding and out in nature and all of that stuff. But now it's for sure. Like there are lots of places for men to lean into the work as well. So I would hope that would help to reduce that. It's that scary for men to just sit with themselves, you know? Well, that, so that study was really interesting and revealed what I feel like really has been ha- has been going on for some time. And I do believe that quarantine and the stats have shown that, that just people being in isolation for such a long period of time has increased the level of anxiety and depression. And throughout quarantine, we went from having in-person experiences to really just creating online community for men to have that access. And we saw it firsthand. It was like a higher level of anxiety, a higher level of loneliness, depression, all of that. So that stat really what it reveals is it's not that men aren't feeling these things. That's just one part of what's happening. It's that usually we tend to look for a distraction. I think as humans in general, we feel and emotions coming up and we cycle it, we bring it back, we stuff it in and we don't allow ourselves to be in our natural state of parasympathetic state of rest and relax. And something, there's another layer, social layer there with men of like, I can't be seen as weak. I can't feel this emotion. So that process, I think there's this conditioning, generational, societal, personal, based on different experiences, where we just get used to avoiding our emotions. So I see many men, and I am one of those that is on this journey of, excuse me, really connecting with my emotions and allowing myself to be with them and not feeling like I am defined by them. A lot of men, uh, when the emotion does come up, it's like, i rather do anything I can sometimes consciously, sometimes, most of the time unconsciously, to distract me from this feeling that is really uncomfortable. So in that study, it was literally like a little shocker. They had it tied to their finger, I believe. They were turning up the heat on the amount of electricity. And, and whenever these emotions were coming up, I think they were asking them questions to really connect with those parts of themselves that revealed those emotions. 
76% of men were shocking themselves because there was nothing else to do in this controlled environment. Mm -hmm. And that's part, that's a big part of the work why I dove into rites of passages and sitting in stillness for four days and four nights and why I've really leaned into supporting other men doing that. But that's the extreme version. I mean, not every man is going to be ready or want to go on a four-day vision quest, but a lot of the work that we do is centered around working on the body, working through the body, and working with the body so that we can get comfortable being with those emotions and comfortable with letting them out. For example, anger and sadness. Oftentimes, including myself, I thought that feeling anger and sadness was going to be the most uncomfortable thing, but actually holding it and not expressing it is more painful than allowing it to come through. And most men, I think most people, but the stats show that most men at a higher rate really allowed themselves to feel those emotions. So they use all of their energy and to either numb out mm -hmm. or go into this extreme of um, sometimes even stay in pain in order to avoid the feeling of discomfort, mm. of feeling of emotion. Hey, beautiful beings. Today's episode is brought to you by an all-time favorite wellness brand of mine, Lotus Way Flower Essences. I've worked with various products by Lotus Way, whether they're delicious elixirs that you put under your tongue, they're aura mist, bath salts, teas, chocolates, you name it, I have tried them and I truly, truly love them all. I swear by their purity and the amazing healing essences that they hold. And no matter what you're looking to transcend in life or bring into your life, Lotus Way has a flower essence for that. But one all-around winner is their Sacred Heart Essence. You can get it in their anointing oil form, their aura mist form, or their elixir. I have them all. And it's a blend that's infused with nine different flower remedies to soothe your heart so you can surrender into self-love and acceptance during times of transition. How amazing is that? And like I said, there are nine different flowers in this essence. One of them is White Iris for purity, aligning with your highest potential and receiving unexpected blessings and support. And another one of the nine is Vanilla Bog Orchid to relieve tension so you can move with more gentleness and ease. So just head to lotusway.com. That's L-O-T-U-S-W-E-I.com. And this is so important. Don't forget to put the code word mystic in the coupon section at checkout. That's code word mystic, M-Y-S-T-I-C, because that will gift you 15% off anything you purchase. All right, fam, back to this amazing episode. I would love for us next, if you could illuminate, we have all different types of folks who join in ceremony circles. Some are so many lifetimes deep on the path and some have just opened the doorway to the world of spirituality. So if you could explain a little bit about vision questing and specifically the way that you have experienced and the way you facilitate and the last little thing before I let you go off on that is with the anger piece, what I've always found so fascinating, specifically with the emotion of anger, is how easily it can hide itself within you. And I have met countless people who would honestly say to me that they 
don't have any anger inside of them at all, that they never have, that they're good to go on the anger front. And I just hold a space of love as I hear that. And there have been a number of times where for whatever reason, our paths cross again, and maybe they've leaned into more healing modalities. And then I will hear from them years later or whatever the case is that, oh, wow, like they actually did end up finding within them so much rage and so much anger. And that's actually the journey that they've been on is like devoting to feeling within their body where anger is trapped and stored and letting it get liberated. And I'm like, ah, ho, you know, because when I hear that nobody, that they have just, they don't have any anger and have never felt it. I'm just like, oh boy, you, okay. It's very fascinating. Well, one thing that we work with the motion of anger a lot in our spaces and we do anger releases in different ways. And whenever we hear of it, and it's just based off of my own experience with anger and based off the percentages of men that we see come through the space that say that I don't have any anger. Usually they end up having the biggest anger release when they feel ready. They've gotten so used to suppressing that anger and it's probably turned into resentment after some point to numbing out. And that's a journey that I really had to, you know, my father always felt okay. And he was like that faucet that the pressure was just building up and he was always angry. I could feel it, but he would always say he was okay. Mm -hmm. And he would leak his anger on everything. So that's always the analogy I use with men and say, I'm not angry. I usually just speak about it from a storytelling perspective, like, When we don't let go of anger, we're like a leaky faucet. We think that we're not releasing this emotion, but we're actually coming out in passive aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. It's coming out in remarks and resentments and feeling some type of way towards someone. And every man has to make his own decision to decide to release that anger. But sometimes powerful questions can get to that emotion and create space for men to really allow themselves to feel the range of their emotion. One way to do that is sometimes when we have an emotion, we tie a story to it. So if there is anger, sometimes we don't even remember why we're angry. We'll tie some story to it. And then we'll say that's the reason we're angry. But usually it's never the occurring event. It's something that happened before. So you can actually do the opposite without actually going into the story to access the anger. One thing that we do is we put on loud music really intense music and we just all get into the range loud expression really intense energy and sometimes what ends up happening is the anger is released in that process and shortly after those men that say that they don't feel anger will usually say wow in doing that loud expression just allowing myself my body to feel that intensity i felt like anger was being released and what comes after is usually sadness So they'll open up their heart and you'll see them. And I've experienced that where sometimes I didn't know how to access my anger. Sometimes men have difficulty doing that, but that's why working on the body first and foremost, like a really intense workout or some sort of body work um, or even using the voice sometimes brings out the anger that we probably didn't even know was there. And that tends to happen with someone who says they never experienced anger because I can go into anger Without really having a reason right now, if I allowed myself to build up and access that range because of the depths of the shadow and anger that I have gone into, 
And we can access happiness the same way, joy the same way. If we wait for something outside of us to make us angry, usually we're waiting for something outside of us to make us feel any emotion. So yeah. even if there is an anger tied to a story, we can always access that emotion in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you could, if we could get into our last little chapter of our chat today with the vision questing and yeah, explaining what it is and the form that you bring some men on, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, I'm currently in my own initiation. I'm on a two-year apprenticeship to be a rite of passage guide. That apprenticeship includes uh, guiding men across the threshold and supporting the lead guides who really I want to give credit. I want to bring legacy to this conversation because my guides come from a long lineage that gets connected back to Lakota vision questing and Hambleche. And over time, it's kind of evolved into a, a bridge between ancestral wisdom and modern embodied leadership training. So a lot of the rites of passages that we do now and what I navigated through myself and have to do again at the end of my apprenticeship uh, is a journey that really encompasses three, three parts. And the first part is severance. The second is uh, threshold. And the third is incorporation. So you can think of it as a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's a rite of passage uh, where the severance piece, the caterpillar is really trying to understand what he's leaving behind, trying to decide what he's stepping into, trying to gather the tools to make sure that this journey and this transition as it goes into Joseph Campbell, the darkness, the dark cave to bring out the treasure we seek. So that severance. And in that process, what I went through and what we create space for men who go through this process to go through is really get clear about everything that has been, everything that is part of their hero's journey up to that point. Everything that they're happy with, everything that they're not, things they want to part ways with, things they want to bring and call into their lives, and really just get clear about what they are going to be sacrificing and for the sake of what. And then threshold is really the ordeal. And although we are guides, and I had guides, and they had guides, threshold is all about going out there for four days and four nights and really just sitting with yourself and allowing yourself to connect with your deepest truth, find out what you're really made of and connect with your inner power. And then that you're also not alone, which is where incorporation comes in. And incorporation is all about being received by a community of other initiated men, integrated and embodied men committed to hold a certain standard in their lives. But just to take it back a step, rites of passages, literally every single one of us comes from a lineage of ancestors that practiced nature-based coming-of-age rituals and rites of passages. And think back to our ancestors. It was a matter of life or death of the community. So there's an African proverb that says, if we don't initiate our boys into men, they will burn the village down, or they will light the village on fire just to watch it burn, right? So there's an element of, okay, that was there's a lot of rites of passages that aren't relevant or in context today's day and age and what leadership looks like today. So there's a way to bring that element of creating space for a deeper understanding of ourselves. 
so that we can be the best leaders we can be for our community and for those that we love. To go from self-serving to of service. And in our rites of passages, we use, we still use the Lakota medicine wheel. And there's four directions and they symbolize four stages of life. On the east, there is the childhood stage. The south, there's the adolescent stage. The west, there's the adult stage. And the north, there's the elderhood stage. And the way my teachers taught me and something I've seen happen in my own journey of becoming a man is that there's a traffic jam between adolescence and adulthood, right? So this is the pivotal moment where we go through a rite of passage and one that has the intention and the support from others that have gone through that journey and transition into that stage of life. So we literally have boys or men or yeah, boys stuck in men's bodies for generations because of that lack of rite of passage in that moment. So the work of a rite of passage is all about transitioning into the next evolution of our life and really putting us in a position where we can't hide from our truth, can't hide from our power, and we can't hide from the fact that no man can be his greatest all the time by himself. He's a community. And in order to have that community support us, we also need to support it. And whether that's like Mother Earth, people that we serve, people we're in relationship with, and just anyone that benefits from how we show up, it's crucial for us to, to really understand the interdependence. So the last piece I'll say is the interdependence with nature is the biggest piece to write of passage. Because once guys are out there, when I was out there for four days and four nights. Where were no you? Death Valley, California. So in the desert, nothing, no food, no company. No shelter, no distractions, no phone, just me, my mind, my body, my heart, my spirit. Were you allowed water? Water, yes. Yeah. So traditional hamlets is no, no water, no sleep, no food. We give men water. <laughs> so it's part of the experience to have that. But there's some elements in there. I wish I could share, but definitely want to keep the mystery to it. That still bring that element of... We have water. There's this deep connection to challenging the body. So even with just water, um, really, when we go back to shocking ourselves, 76%, right? That's literally using the body and pain and the nervous system to escape a feeling that is present within the somatic body in its entirety and not eating. I mean, think about how when we grow up throughout our entire lives, we go to the pantry or go to food as a way to soothe our nervous system. And we create this pattern where half the time we're not even hungry. We're just eating in order to satiate our discomfort. So going out there without food for four days is one of the biggest pieces to seeing that discomfort come up and wanting to turn around and reach for that chocolate bar or whatever it is and not being able to do so. You literally have to sit there there's no shocker, <laughs> there's no TV, there's no phone, and there's no food. It's just you, your thoughts, and sitting in stillness until so mm. the truth is revealed. So beautiful and powerful. Yeah, thank you for being honoring of the traditions and ways that you're learning from and also, yeah, speaking 
to the point of we're evolutionary beings and we're in this modern day and allowing some of these really ancient practices to slightly morph where deemed appropriate and needed. And yeah, I haven't really covered too much vision questing on Ceremony Circle and I've been wanting to. So thanks for opening the door a little bit to it and letting people know that. I mean, there are all sorts of different types of vision questing that come from all sorts of different lineages and there's slightly different ways of going about it as we're chatting about in terms of like how long you're out there and all the details involved. But nonetheless, vision questing is a very powerful rite of passage. And I love that you are bringing it specifically and honoring that threshold crossing of boy to man that just feels so needed right now, especially. Yeah. I mean, this last rite of passage we had, the oldest was 48. And earlier last year, the youngest was 18. And he was actually my fiance's brother. So mm-hmm. there's, I say boy to man, but I think really a rite of passage is just an intentional container where some sort of induced trauma has created a challenge um, that marks the transition from one stage of our life to the other. So regardless of where we are in life and how we think of ourselves being a man or not, I would definitely consider doing one again at another very pivotal moment in my life. For example, when I get transitioned and initiated into a lead guide and perhaps sometime in mid-age or a period of my life. Yeah, well, as usual, there were so many things on this list over here that we didn't even get a chance to get to, but I always trust and always surrender before I click record to that whatever flow, whatever questions, whatever topics we cover are the exact precise things that are meant to be shared. So I always trust in that. But when I look at the list, I'm like, oh, but this and that, and oh God, if we didn't get to really specifically diving into finding one's edge and why is that so important? And how do you do that? Like there's so many other things I wanted to cover. Perhaps there'll need to be a part two at some point (laughs) down the line. But yeah, I want to be respectful of your time. And if you could, I mean, it makes sense to transition from where we're at in our conversation to your closing ceremony. So I'll I'll let you wrap things up from here. And I actually, what I've started doing is if you could share how people can best reach you now, I find once we get into the closing ceremony, it feels so wonky to be like, what's your website? So if you could share that now. Yeah, thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at rjose underscore Alejandro. Um, my personal website is actually due to be completed and redesigned in three weeks. So just go to my Instagram and you can find the links there. But with regards to Modern Renaissance Men, if there's any men that are listening to this and anything resonated about my own journey or the work that we do with MRM, just go to themrmofficial.com slash telegram. We have over... 300 men in there. And it's a great first step to just feeling that level of support, accountability, and camaraderie. Yeah. And for those, it's a little hard to hear certain letters. Sometimes the MRM stands for modern Renaissance man. So you get what those letters are. (laughs) Okay, cool. I'll let you share whatever you feel called to share for our closing ceremony today. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be here and I think it's appropriate for me to share the story. So there's a book called American Indian Myths and Legends. And 
this is a book that very close friend, dear brother, boy, put me on and just incredible stories in here. So I'm really called to share this one because it connects to my attachment to what a vision quest was going to be. And then the revel, what was revealed in actually allowing myself to go to those depths and surrender to the experience. So it's called the vision quest. The vision quest is a traditional, is a tradition among the plains people, a man or woman seeking the way on the road of life or trying to find the answer to a personal problem may go on a vision quest for knowledge. This may mean staying on top of a hill or inside of a vision pit alone without food or water for as long as four days and nights. It is hard, but if the spirit voices reveal or confer a vision that shapes a person's life, then the quest is worth all the suffering. The following tale, however, treats the vision quest with less than complete solemnity with Sioux medicine man Lane Deer's characteristic works. A young man wanted to go on a hamlecha or a vision seeking to try for a dream that would give him power to be a great medicine man. Having a high opinion of himself, he felt sure that he had been created to become great among his people and that the only thing lacking was a vision. The young man was daring and brave, eager to go up to the mountaintop. He had been brought up by good, honest people who were wise in the ancient ways and prayed for him. All through the winter, they were busy getting him ready, feeding him wasna or corn, and plenty of good meat to make him strong. At every meal, they set aside some things for the spirit, for the spirits, so they would help him to get a great vision. His relatives thought he had the power even before he went up, but that was putting the cart before the horse or the travel before the horse, as this is an Indian legend. When at last he started up his quest, it was a beautiful morning in late spring. The grass was up, the leaves were out, nature was at its best. Two medicine men accompanied him. They put him up, they put up a sweat lodge to purify him in the hot white breath of the sacred steam. They sanctified him with the incense of sweet grass, rubbing his body with sage, fanning it with an eagle's wing. They went up to the hilltop with him to prepare the vision pit and make an offering of tobacco bundles. Then they told the young man to cry, to humble himself, to ask for holiness, to cry for power, for a sign from the great spirit, for a gift which would make him into a medicine man. After they had done all they could, they left him there. He spent his first night in the hole the medicine men dug for him, trembling and crying out loud. Fear kept him awake, yet he was cocky, ready to wrestle with the spirits for the vision the power he wanted, but no dreams came to ease his mind. Toward morning before the sun up, he heard a voice in the swirling mists of dawn, speaking from no particular direction, as if it came from different places, it said, see here, young men, there are no other spots you could have picked. There are no other hills around here. Well, why don't you go there to cry for a dream? You disturbed us all night. All us creatures, animals, and birds, you even kept the trees awake. We couldn't sleep. Why should you cry here? You're a brash young man, not ready or worthy to receive a vision. 
But the young man clenched his teeth, determined to stick it out, resolved to force that vision to come. He spent another day in the pit, begging for enlightenment, which would not come. And then another night of fear and cold and hunger. The young man cried out in terror. He was paralyzed with fear, unable to move. The boulder dwarfed everything in view, towered over the vision pit. But just as it was an arm's length away and about to crush him, it stopped. Then the young man stared open mouthed, his hair standing up, his eyes staring out of his head. The boulder rolled up the mountain, all the way up to the top. He could barely believe what he saw. He was still cowering motionless when he heard the roar and ramble again and saw that the immense boulder coming, was coming down at him once more. This time he managed to jump out of his vision pit and at the last moment. The boulder crushed it, obliterated it, grinding the young man's peace pipe and gourd rattle to dust. Again, the boulder rolled up the mountain and again it came down. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, hollered the young man. Regaining his power of motion, scrambled down the hill as fast as he could. This time the boulder actually leapfrogged over him, bouncing down the slope, crushing and pulverizing everything in its way. He ran unseen, stumbling, falling, getting up again. He did not even notice the boulder rolling up once more and coming down for the fourth time. On this last and most fearful descent, it flew through the air on a giant leap, landing right in front of him and embedding itself so deeply in the earth that only its top was visible. The ground shook itself like a wet dog coming out of a stream and flung the young man this way and that. Gaunt, bruised, and shaken, he stumbled back to the village to the medicine men and said, I have received no vision, gained no knowledge, he returned to the pit, and when dawn arrived once more, he heard the voice again. Stop disturbing us. Go away. The same thing happened on the third morning. By this time, he was faint and hungry, thirsty, and had anxiety. Even the air seemed to oppress him, to fight him. He was panting. His stomach felt shriveled up, shrunk tight against his backbone. But he was determined to endure just one more night, the fourth and last. Surely the vision would come, surely this time. But again, he cried for it out of the dark and loneliness until he was hoarse. And he had no dream. Just before daybreak, he heard the voice again, very angry. Why are you still here? He knew then that he had suffered in vain. Now he would have to go back to his people and confess that he had gained no power, no knowledge. And the only thing he could tell them was that he got bald out every morning. Sad and cross, he replied, I can't help myself. This is my last day, and I'm crying my eyes out. I know you told me to go home, but who are you to give me orders? I don't know you. I'm going to stay until my uncles come fetch me, whether you like it or not. All at once, there was a rumble from a larger mountain that stood behind the hill. It became a mighty roar, and the whole hill trembled. The wind started to blow. The young man looked up and saw a boulder poised on the mountain summit. He saw lightning hit it, saw it sway. Slowly the boulder moved, slowly at first, then faster, then faster. It came tumbling down the mountainside, churning up the earth, snapping huge trees as if they were little twigs, and the boulder was coming right down on him. 
I have made the spirits angry. It was all for nothing. Well, you did find out one thing, said the older of the two, who was his uncle. You went after your vision like a hunter after a buffalo or a warrior after scalps. You were fighting the spirits. You thought they owed you a vision. Suffering alone brings no vision, nor does courage, nor does sheer willpower. A vision comes as a gift born of humility, of wisdom, and of patience. If from your vision quest you have learned nothing but this, you have already learned much. Think about it. Told by Lane Deer at Winter Rosebud Indian Reservation, South Dakota, 1967. That was so good. I was really traversing along as you were sharing that. I'll be sure to have the name of that book and the show notes for folks if you feel called to get it. And yeah, it's such a relatable story that can apply to just so many different ceremonial or experiences I've had myself. I was laughing. I really took me to my time in Sedona. I had never been there before. And when Luke and I knew that we wanted to leave LA and we were just wanting to answer the call as to where we should move, we went to different places to try them out. And we brought our dog and cat and did the whole thing to like really dip into places and see if we were feeling called to move there. And Sedona was one said place. And long story short, you know, you hear all these stories about Sedona. Oh, you know, it's this or that. And most people are like, Allison, I guarantee you're going to love it there. You, you know, we're going to hear soon that you guys want to move there. And boy, oh boy, like <laughs> as soon as we got there, the energetics, the divine energetics that are Sedona, they were not kind to me. They were that massive copper bowl, medicine <laughs> bowl that is Sedona just was spinning me around that copper bull and banging me around that copper bull. And I will never forget at one point, I mean, and I'm, I'm just a very healthy, sturdy soul on a mind, body, spirit, soul level, have a lot of just adaptability and different aspects of myself, but I was just felt like in sheer hell there and just struggling there so much. And I finally had to be honest with Luke. I was like, honey, I know that you were hoping that we would get here and this would be that. And we would look for houses. And I'm like, I hate it here. Like I can't stand it here. I'm coming out of my body. I'm so out of sorts. And I remember one day, at our first Airbnb going down to this little Arroyo area, water runs through it at some points of the year, but when we were there, it was dry. There are all sorts of javelinas that would run through this zone. And I was sitting down there and I remember speaking to the potent energetics or Sedona. And I was like, oh yeah, you think that like, I understand that you're strong and you're a force. Well, I'm strong and I'm a force too. And like coming up, like there's this part of me that was like coming up for battle of like the energetics of this vortex place. And long story short, I know it's already long, but I ended up getting very just finally relinquishing and just letting myself get more humbled and getting into a place of deeper humility and acceptance and surrender. And like, instead of fighting against and feeling like I needed to exclaim something to these energies, finally just speaking to them in a different way. And I left, even though it was a very completely uncomfortable experience in so many different ways for both of us. He got vertigo and had all sorts of like, it was wild. There were so many things that happened, but I left there with so much respect for the place because 
our intention in going there was please clearly show us, clearly show me if this is where we should put roots down, if this is where we should make a home. And it so clearly answered that prayer and was like, no, you're not to live here full time. You're not, this is not where you're to put roots down. And so I left with such a deep, humble bow of like, thank <laughs> you for so loudly and clearly answering my prayer. That's beautiful. <laughs> and I'm so happy that was you felt from the story. Yeah, so good. Well, thank you for your time and all your storytelling medicine and yeah, just your honesty and sharing so many different aspects of your own life today and the different offerings you have for yourself and for other people to lean into. We'll link everything in the show notes and you'll also be linked in the Instagram post and, and all the collateral that comes out for that. So it was so great to meet you. And it's so healing for me to have you be in Puerto Rico. There's something really big and profound in, in our coming together today. So thank you so much. Beautiful. Well, thank you for those reflections. Thank you for having me. It was an incredible honor to share stories with you. And I look forward to continuing to unfold our relationship and having more of these conversations. Oh, and as always, thank you, Soul Fam, for weaving and sitting around the fire with us and we will sit with you again next time. Woo-wee, what a powerful voyage that was. It is always so fun and such an honor to share space with these beautiful beings willing to generously share their time, wisdom, and energy so we can have the opportunity to enrich our own lives. And we will always share each epic guest's links and contact info in the show notes that are on my website, alisoncharles.com, and also in my weekly Ceremony Circle podcast Instagram posts at I am Allison Charles. So it makes it easy for you to connect more deeply with them. And fam, you know by now all the heart I put into creating this show. And I would love to be able to continue providing this free content for a long, long time to come. And what would be most supportive in me being able to do that is if you have ever felt you've gained anything positive at all from listening to a Ceremony Circle podcast episode, if it's brightened your day, if it's given you clarity or insights you've been waiting for, if you felt a healing shift during one of the closing ceremony practices, anything at all, if you can just stay on whatever platform you're now listening to this show and simply go to the rating and review section and share even one reason why you're grateful for Ceremony Circle Podcast. Sacred reciprocity is a big deal and I deeply appreciate you giving back to me so I can keep creating and providing. Sending you so much love. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and my intention is not to provide medical advice or diagnosis. You should always consult a health professional before making drastic changes to your diet or lifestyle.